if you were sitting on a pile of capital today and you had to allocate it, what, what kind of capital allocation would you follow? I would buy... Alrighty, it's Friday and it's no ordinary Friday here at Banter. This is one of the biggest Friday shows we've ever had. This is a, a great show because I'm going to be catching up with one of my friends who I haven't spoken to for a long time. In fact, the last time I spoke to him, he completely obliterated Nuriel Rubini in a debate around Bitcoin. And if you know Nuriel Rubini, then you'll know that whoever's coming on here today is a big guest and he's got a lot to say for himself. So today's going to be an unbelievable, unbelievable show. Uh, make sure you stay tuned and make sure you stay tuned till the end. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Get the fuck out of bed, bitch. Go. Get up, get up, and then they got go. Wake up, bitch, get up. Get up, Wakey, wakey, rise and shine. It's Friday, guys, and it's not an ordinary Friday. It's Banter Friday, and it's a massive, massive, massive Banter Friday. And even though today we're not bantering with a normal panel like we banter with everyone else, I think you're going to get a lot of banter here today. And that, in fact, I guarantee you that today. But just before we start here today, just want to remind you guys that our Friday banters are brought to you by NordVPN. And I always say to you guys that NordVPN is the VPN for people who are interested in crypto. And in fact, if you are in crypto and you're not using a VPN, you're in a suicide mission because... Not only are you exposing your, your IP address to hackers who can then track down your accounts and hack your crypto and steal your crypto, but you're also exposing it to all the DeFi protocols and all the exchanges. And to be honest, I don't want people knowing what my IP address on my computer is. So if you want to protect your crypto, make sure you go to the link below. There's a link below in, in our show. Click on the NordVPN uh, uh, click on the NordVPN link. And what you'll see is that you can protect your crypto for as little as $3 a month. Yeah, guys, $3 a month to protect your crypto. Not only that, when you do that, you're supporting a sponsor, which uh, which actually uh, does a whole lot for crypto and helps us bring these Banter Fridays to you. And this one's going to be no different. It's going to be one of the best Banter Fridays we've ever had. So, guys, come on, do it today. Sign up. Last last week, you guys, a whole lot of you guys signed up. It was absolutely amazing. Do it again. Give our sponsors some love so they can keep bringing us these Banter Fridays. All right, listen. So, without further ado, I want to give, I think our guest needs no introduction. Uh, today on the show, we've got Arthur Hayes, a friend of mine who I haven't seen for a long time. In fact, the last time that I saw Arthur was here when we were both in Taipei and he completely, completely, completely obliterated Nuriel Rabini in a debate. Arthur, you remember that, of course, right? Absolutely. It was a great yeah. event. It was a great, a great event in Taipei and it was before COVID and all the travel restrictions and everything exactly. else. Life was good. Life was good. We didn't have to wear masks or anything. <laughs> so how are you feeling? How are you feeling about the markets? How are you feeling about the global cycle? I mean, I follow your Twitter account and I, and I, and I catch snippets of it, but keen to understand from you, how are you feeling? Huh? How Are you bullish? Are you bearish? What's, what's the sentiment like? I mean, I think it's, it's all kind of coming together in terms of the narratives around crypto, global macro, you know, this super cycle of sovereign debt since world, you know, world war II, And we're kind of focused on since COVID 
probably for the rest of this decade, decade is going to be um, very good for some people, very bad for some people. But I think we're going to reevaluate how the world works uh, over the next decade. And, you know, obviously there's some bad things associated with that. But I'm extremely excited that hopefully we can get rid of some of this dead weight that we've been lugging around um, since we created these you know, artificial structures after, uh, after the war. So you're saying in the next decade, we're going to really reevaluate and, and, and there's going to be a lot of changes. What do you think the main area of the changes is going to be? What, what do you think we're going to be losing? What do you think is going to be changing? Oh, well, I think, you know, we, we're transitioning from this, let's say, structural inflation. And I think there's a lot of people who have said the same thing. We've underinvested in the energy that it takes to run our, our society, right? Over the past probably 10 years, we've had these illusions that we can transition into this, you know, fossil fuel less or free world in record pace when it took us almost 100 years to get to where we are today in terms of the infrastructure that was built to support this modern ecosystem. And I think we're, seeing, we're, we're quickly seeing the folly of, of some of these decisions that we've allowed our politicians and our names of the people to make for us uh, on this. And, you know, it's not just a Russia-Ukraine thing, but these are things that have, you know, started kicking off as, you know, we have almost 8 billion people on this planet and they all, you know, some of them were very rich at the top end, but there's a lot of people in the middle and the bottom who are like, fuck this, I want a car, I want air conditioning, I want to eat beef and chicken uh, and protein, I don't want to see plants and, you know, and some bugs is what some people would Tell the tell the poor to eat so that we can save the planet. Fuck that! I want I want the things you have, right? And so, how do we deliver the same sort of gains from you know the 1950s and 60s till present for the developed world to the you know other six billion people of this world who want to have the finer things in life too? So, so how do you how do you imagine that the world will change? I mean, what, what are the changes that you anticipate? I think that we are finally going to get away from uh, our belief that central bankers and these, these you know, what I said called central planners have any clue about what finance is about uh, on a global stage, that we've built up all this debt and there's various reasons for it. And we're going to see this artifice, hopefully not spectacularly implode, but it's going to change, right? And so I think a relationship with fiat currencies um, maybe we rediscover what it means to have a currency like gold and Bitcoin that isn't someone else's liability and whose use doesn't depend on a, a particular system functioning. And so I think that's going to be extremely exciting. Yeah, I must say, I agree with you. Let, let's go Let's go from the big decade long picture to kind of like where we are today. And if I look at where we are today, we're in an environment where the U.S. is imp- reporting 8% inflation, give or take depending on, on how you look at it. There is a, a war in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you've got midterm elections coming up in, in, in just a couple of weeks. How are you feeling about the short-term cycle? Where do you think we are in terms of the short-term cycle? So the short-term cycle, not the next decade, but the next 12 months. Yeah, so I guess, as everyone knows, we are in we're, we're a U.S. dollar-led world, right? And the dollars are becoming more expensive if you can get them. Right. And we're seeing this suck of liquidity out from um, everywhere else except for the United States. Right. And the Fed not only stimulated the most in terms of the increase in money supply during COVID um, of any developed nation and probably any developing nation as well, like, you know, something like 40 percent rise over two years uh, in the money supply. So they created a lot of this you know, inflation. There's some other stuff that they didn't create. And now they're trying to, to walk it back. 
the massive error that they made coming out of out of COVID. Uh, and that's sort of they're tightening the other direction as quickly as they can. Although I would argue that this whole narrative that Jerome Powell is Paul Volcker is completely false. He's nothing like Paul Volcker. He's Jerome Powell and he has his own constraints. Uh, and the Fed is kind of, in my view, trying to do the muddle through. You know, they're not tightening too much to actually, you know, crimp inflation, right? Uh, I, <clears throat> I haven't published this chart. I will hopefully soon. Um, NDR, a research house, uh, for me created uh, the Taylor Rule, which if you're not uh, familiar with economics, it's a relationship between um, inflation and unemployment and where short-term rates should be. And it was popularized starting in the, the mid-90s and a lot of the Fed targeted, okay, we want to try to be like the Taylor Rule in the, in the 90s. They've went off that ever um, since then. But it sort of gives a relationship in the U.S. economy. Where are they versus this framework that a lot of these professional academics believe in versus the actual rate? And so if you look at even today, even at, I don't know, was it 3% and the, the, the short-term lower bound of the Fed funds rate, they're like, eight or 10% negative below where they should be. So they're not really fighting inflation because it's Jerome Powell and all the other Fed governors know if they really wanted to fight inflation and they restricted money to supply to the degree to bring down activity and um, to bring down inflation, they would completely destroy the entire sovereign debt market of the world. And so they're trying to do this. Okay, we're going to raise rates quickly a little bit. Um, and we're going to talk a big game about how we're really serious about not being in the seventies and, and all this stuff. But at the other end, we don't want all the rich people that we sort of made really, really rich over the last four years to go broke because their debt-backed fiat assets essentially are marked to zero as the you know the discount rate goes from you know zero to probably we need to go 10, 15% if they really were trying to be like Volcker, uh, so they claim. So, okay, you said a couple of things. You said that the Fed made a mistake by printing the $6 trillion that they printed. Why do you think it was such a mistake? I mean, if it was such a mistake, what other option did they have given that economies were, were shut down? And I mean, they had to keep the economy going. Well, I mean, the government can change the economics, right? The government can uh, fiscally spend. It wasn't as if the rates in the United States, the 10-year rate was like, I don't know, 2% or something like that uh, before March 2020 when when COVID finally hit, it wasn't as, as if the U.S. government couldn't finance itself and it needed to have the help of the Federal Reserve to basically print the money to buy their bonds, right? They, the U.S. government could afford to offer it set out. If anything, people were flooding into the U.S., right, to 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 purchase U.S. dollars as they were afraid of what would happen uh, around the world in financial markets. What the Fed did was it nationalized the corporate bond market in the U.S., it said, you know, if you're a particular class of issuer or, or above, you're good because we don't want all these companies to go out of business. Now, people say, OK, well, this pandemic, it's it's an unheard thing, unheard thing. Ever since we've been living in enclosed spaces as humans, we've had pandemics. Um, and so over the last century, we've had multiple pandemics. So to claim that this is an unheard of scenario where a lot of people die quickly because of some uh, communicable disease between humans who live in cities, is dumb because that's just not how it happened. And so should that business probably have deserved to go gone bankrupt at the expense of inflation for the rest of the world? You know, you can make your choice on that one. But that's essentially what they did. And they printed all the money to save all, save these companies who um, probably some of them didn't, shouldn't have existed anymore. Yeah, I think I think I, I think I think I agree with you on that, on that analysis. Let's move a little bit forward. In terms of what the Fed's doing now, we've had 
I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's certainly unprecedented, unprecedented in recent times. But we've had the Fed increase interest rates by 75 basis points multiple times. If I look at the chart for what is expected at the meeting on the 2nd of November, which is uh, just before the midterms, five days before the midterms, there's a 98.2% chance of another 75 basis point rate hike. So that feels like, to me, it feels like the Fed is being pretty aggressive in their approach. Do you not think that they're being aggressive? Do you think they're being too easy? No. So I hopefully I'll get the chance to write this essay. It's on my you know cutting block and being worked on. And I had a, I had a thought one day. I was like, okay, everyone says that Powell's like Volcker. Let me just go back and just look at the math and see, and see what he did. What did Paul Volcker actually do? So he came into the Fed in, 19, in August of 1979 is when he became chairman of the Fed. And uh, short-term Fed funds, they weren't targeting it at that point. It was about 10.5%. 10 in 19, by 1981, third quarter, eight months later, he had doubled, almost doubled the Fed funds rate to close to 20%. Okay. So Powell, it's been eight months. Now, not only did Powell print all the money, Volcker wasn't the chairman and didn't print all the money and then came in and then took it all away from everybody. You know, obviously he was a government employee and treasury and all sorts of other departments, but he wasn't the chairman of the Fed. He came in, it was at that level, right? Powell comes in, prints a bunch of, prints a bunch of money, takes rates down to zero. Oh, I made a mistake. Okay, I'm going to be like Volcker now. And he goes from 0% in March of 2022 till today we're at 3%, right? Inflation at, in March of 2022 was running at around 8%. So we was just in that metric alone, he was 8% below um, inflation. Today, inflation's at similar levels, 8%, and he's still 4 or 5% below inflation. Whereas Volcker was already exceeding CPI in the first eight months, right? So Powell is not being Volcker. Powell is Jerome Powell, because if you look at the situation of the, the debt um, in the US from the late 70s and early 80s versus today, the society was much less levered in the late 70s and early 80s than we are today. You know, debt to GDP was about 30% in 1980 versus 130% today. Um, non-financial corporate debt was half of what it was as a percentage of GDP in the early 80s and the late 70s versus 70, 50%, 75% of GDP today. So Powell is existing in a completely different ecosystem. And to add to that, if you know, everyone says, oh, Powell's a bond trader, he understands the bond market, and I believe he does. And if you do the math and you take a bond that starts at zero and then you move interest rates even a little bit, the price declines much more than a bond that starts at a 10.5% discount rate and doubles. And that's just the convexity. And that's why being at the zero bound is so, so, so dangerous. And the Fed put themselves in this position. And now it's impossible for them to get out of it without completely destroying the whole financial system of the American and Western-led uh, modern society. And that's why he's muddling through. He can't go the full distance. He can't be a Paul Volcker. He can be Jerome Powell. Okay, so how would you score what Jerome Powell is doing out of 10? If, if, I mean, if you were to, to rank what he was doing, what, what rank would you give him out of 10? Two. Okay. You can't, you um, can't play the middle. He, like, okay. Fine. Uh, my, my, in my view, take, choose a direction, right? Either it's, okay, we're going to double down on this very, very low interest rate to save our asses, and hopefully maybe there's some miracle in – how the U.S. produces energy, you know, they let people frack some more, they open up, you know, offshore drilling somewhere, 
U.S. and versus net nuclear technology, small scale reactors and you know, automobiles, that kind of thing. And so the U.S. lowers its energy dependence and grows its way out of it. Or you say, you know what, we're going for a hard reset and we are going to completely remove all the excess of, of the last 34 years because we believe that we're going to put the U.S. in, in, in the right track going forward. And unbeknownst to, I think, the financial planners at the time in the 1930s, that's kind of what the U.S. did during the Great Depression. It suffered an extreme deflation of asset prices. It had way too much stuff for what the economy could actually handle. That was a very painful adjustment period. But if you think about how the U.S. emerged out of the Great Depression versus Europe, we said we're going to extend and pretend um, like not, like we we don't have this prop the same overcapacity problem. The U.S. had 1950 to 1990 of being top dog, right, and uh, an expansionary economy versus Europe has basically been the bitch boy to the U.S. Um, since they decided to destroy themselves, um, and you know, and and World War II. So you know, take the pain grow out of it or just keep going with it but the middle not only do you piss off the rich people the poor people are still have inflation so what are you really doing here you're accomplishing nothing so if Powell carries on in his trajectory and we get a 75 basis point rate hike now and probably you'll get a 50 to 75 basis point rate hike before the end of the year and if you look at where the the terminal fund rate is i think it's about i think it's about 4.5 percent and yep. to be honest i don't really believe that that's where it is i think that, that that's where it is today I think that as we get closer, people realize that it's going to go up to six, seven, and maybe even eight percent. But regardless of my belief, if Powell continues on this trajectory, what happens? How does this play out? This plays out. So you know, and I've been doing some reading of um, just how, how the same problem has been in existence since Bretton Woods was envisioned, which is the U.S. is a very domestically focused politically place because um, it can feed itself, it has enough fuel, and has two oceans between it. So it doesn't really worry about getting invaded. So people are pretty focused on themselves. And so the, you know, isolationist versus internationalist conflict of US politics has been ever present. And when you run the reserve currency of the world, your, your policy almost needs to be international and not local. Whereas the Fed's running very local policies. I want to have a strong dollar. Um, I, I want to reduce inflation for the voters who are really mad right now because you know their negative wage earnings since Biden has taken office, wages have been below inflation, right? Uh, and so they're pissed off, understandably. I'm going to run a policy that's going to hopefully help them where the U.S. is basically removing the dollars from the world that the world needs to operate. The global system is based on dollar. I need to have these dollars to trade, but Powell's saying no more dollars for you. Uh, we're gonna not not only it's not, it's not even a price thing. It's hey, we're just gonna remove these dollars from from the system, and it's having obviously disastrous impacts on a lot of these economies. And so that's why you see the IMF and all these all these you know world politicians like, hey, Fed, you need to stop this. This is the American-led order. You're supposed to provide us with the dollars so that we can trade under your rules. Yet you're saying I have these other priorities to these voters over here. I need to focus on my domestic situation. And so what's gonna happen is we're this, there's gonna be something that's gonna blow up in the treasury market, I, I, I imagine, because that's the market that is most exposed to this. If the Fed's selling, the treasury is selling, and the foreigners are selling. And so I think in the next three to six months, there'll be something dysfunctional that's gonna happen. And that's you know the key word, market dysfunction. And then mm -hmm. the Fed rides to the rescue and you know reverses courses and turns the tap back on. 
three to six months, as soon as that. Yeah. The, the, the issue is when you go from zero percent, if you do the bond, if you do the math, take a zero coupon bond, take a 10 year zero coupon bond, plug in a zero percent discount rate, um, then plug in a one percent discount rate and look at the change in price versus starting with a five percent discount rate and, and going to six percent. And you're going to see the, the massive convexity in the bond at the zero bound. Now, uh, your short bonds as the central bank, right? And so your short interest rates, interest rates rise the value of people's bonds go down. If everyone was fucking buying bonds when they were 0%, if that negative yielding, right? We had, what, $18 trillion of negative yielding debt at its peak and sometime in like, you know, 2021 or 2020, whatever it was. These, you were buying a bond guaranteeing to lose you money and only a 1% to 2% rise in the bond prices completely destroys your returns. And that's what we see this year, right? Bloomberg total ag bond index globally down, I don't know, 14, 15%. Interest rates have only gone up two or three points. And so yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just madness. I, I saw this uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen this. I'm sure this is not news to you, but it was a, a tweet from Charlie Belillo and he says, the 60-40 portfolio of US stocks and bonds is down 21% in 2022. I mean, that's almost unprecedented. Maybe there's two, three, two, three other times in, in, in modern history that we've had that. Yeah, and then I was actually reading a, uh, I'm a, I'm an investor in this vol hedge fund and, and he was writing this week, he called it the, uh, the sharp world. And then basically his whole thesis, and he talks about this in almost, almost every, every one of his letters, is that the, the institutional, and that's why I call these people Muppets, because they just lose you money. Um, the institutional investors and their 60-40 portfolio and their sharp ratios and their uh, arithmetic returns that reset every year at Jan 1 because they get paid bonuses on December 31st, right, is structured in such a way to give a intellectual fallacy that having a zero or very low yielding bond paired with a fuck ton of leverage somehow protects your portfolio in the long run from, from vol and lowers the volatility and gets you out on the efficient frontier. And we're seeing that's complete bullshit because stocks are down, bonds are down, correlations are up. That's just deadly three things for 60-40. 60-40 is a fucking piece of shit. And if you're in it, you should get out of it because you're gonna be guaranteed to lose money in this world where all these things, we're unwinding all this risk, all this, all, all these you know, constructs that don't exist in the real world because they were just these rules that people had to follow. And this is why the pension funds blew up in the UK. And there's going to be other you know, similar type events because we have accounting rules that essentially force people to buy bonds at uneconomic levels because no one else would buy this shit. Who's buy why would you buy a bond that's 0% unless you had to because there's, there's of no some capital ratio or some accounting rule or whatever it is, right? And so we created this whole ecosystem because we need the government to say, we're going to print all this money. We need to sell these bonds. So let's create an academic framework to justify why somebody should buy this stuff and stuff it to all these, you know, these money managers. And who loses? It's the average person, right? Because the average person is invested in the 401k or whatever their pension fund is, or the national teachers or the firefighters or the police unions. Everybody, you know, we're invested in these things. These are the people buying this dog shit. And they, you know, come from some university, have some degree and, you know, they can, you know, do a lot of cool math, but it's just bullshit. So if you wouldn't be invested right now in the 60-40 portfolio, and I think I agree with you that that, I mean, that's a very traditional way of investing. 
how would you be allocating capital right now? If you were sitting on a pile of capital today and you had to allocate it, what, what kind of capital allocation would you follow? I would buy short-term U.S. treasuries and wait. Short-term U.S. treasuries being two-year U.S. treasuries? Uh, you know, zero to one-year treasuries. And just zero there. to one-year treasuries. And, and, get yourself, and get yourself 3%, whatever, whatever the rate yeah. is, 3%, 3.5%. Whatever whatever the rate is. So you'd be sitting in cash earning three to 4%. What would be your trigger point to start deploying? The Fed's going to tell us there's going to be, we're, we're going to, there's going to be some event, right? So March, 2020, what was it? It was a corporate bond market froze, right? And our market broke next morning, Fed emergency meeting. Oh, we're bailing out the entire corporate bond market. There'll be something similar, similar to how the guilt, the UK guilt market, right? It is three days, took three days. Yields rose on a 100 basis points in the 30 year and in, in the UK it only took three, three trading days. And the BOA said, oh, no, we're not selling any more bonds. Oh, yes, we have 65 billion pounds we're going to buy over 13 weeks. Um, completely scratched everything. Right. So we're going to have an event like that. And it's going to be entirely obvious. And then risk is going to go like that. And then you get hit back on the bus. So what you think is the best trade before that is to accumulate as much cash as you possibly can. Sit on the cash, make sure that you've got access to the cash in whatever interest rate you get, whether it's one, two, three, four, five percent, earn that interest, and then just wait for the market to break. And when the market yep. breaks, you'll know on the day that the market's breaking, that the market's breaking, and that, you know, just wait for the announcement of the Fed meeting with the emergency meeting, and then deploy all your capital just before that. Or after it. Doesn't you don't need to try to time it, right? You know, it, did you did you need to be you know, was it March 23rd, whatever the date was when the Fed's, you know, bailed out the corporate bond market? Did you need to bottom tick the S&P and the NASDAQ 100? No. Let them tell you about all the new fancy acronyms are going to roll out to print money. And then you just start. What, what did the I forgot who said it. It was some JP Morgan senior exec. He said the reason why you buy corporate bonds right now is because you're co-investing with the Fed. Co-invest with the Fed. Buy what they're going to buy. Uh, and if they're buying a particular type of bond, you buy that. If they're buying a particular, if they're buying ETFs now, you buy that. It's just like in Japan, right? The BOJ buys Nikkei ETFs, you buy Nikkei ETFs, right? Don't don't confuse it. And then obviously there's a crypto angle, but if you're just saying in a traditional non-crypto sphere, that, that's how I would approach it. Okay. How concerned are you about what's happening with international currency? So like um, specifically, let's look at the Japanese yen, for example. So I've got this chart over here. Uh, the reason I want to talk about this one was this is the point where the Japanese central bank intervened. Mm -hmm. You see, we had a little bit of a little period of calm after that. And then, well, look where we are today. We're way above that point. We had the same thing happen in the UK. The UK, I think, got away quite easily where, you know, they had a little bit of a mess up. They recovered and now we're kind of back at, at these kind of levels. How concerned are you about the strong dollar and these high interest rates destroying other currencies? They will, you know, the reason why the Japanese yen is being destroyed is because, you know, Karuda-san and you know, the Japanese establishment, banking establishment is committed to running a policy that is vastly divergent from the U.S. dollar. And so if your interest rate is 25 basis points on your 10-year yield and the U.S. dollar in the U.S. Treasury is at four, well, then guess what? Your currency is going to depreciate. And you could either allow the rate to rise and that will, you know, the yen will come back down, right? It's, it's a simple thing, but why can't you allow the rate to back to rise? Well, and I written, I wrote about this as well. You have all of these, you know, structured products that were essentially people selling vol 
people selling rates to pick up some yield because they couldn't earn anything because of zero interest rate policy, right? So you have all this sitting in the banking system, all this and at the 0% bound, which is the most convex point in, in, in the curve. And we're gonna go from 25 basis points to 50 basis points, you'll probably bankrupt the entire um, Japanese banking system. That's exactly why, it will never, that's why it can't happen until maybe the yen's at 200 and then they, can make, they have to make a choice. Who, who pays for the loss? It's a political decision, right? It's a political allocation of the losses. And so that's where we're not there yet. You know, they're going to keep going. Oh, 25 basis points. Yep. Inflation. Nope. We, you know, I think Karuta came out recently over the weekend. Oh, we, you know, we're, we're going to go back down. We don't have a wage price spiral. We need inflation in Japan. All right. You want $200 yen? I, I do. I'm going to Tokyo. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to eat some, some momakase. I mean, this would be great. Half off. Right. And in the span of six months. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, yeah, I, mean, I, I, heard, I, I heard the British tourists in the United States aren't smiling anymore. In fact, I've heard some of them are, are struggling to pay for their flights back after what happened with the, uh, <laughs> with, the, with the fall of the pound. They were complaining that their 30-pound breakfasts are now costing them 50 pounds or, or, or whatever it is. It's, I mean, that's, that's, pretty much, that's pretty much how they feel. Um, I mean, it's easy for you to say because you're sitting in the U.S. and you know, you're a dollar denominator, but we're living in, in Africa. And unless you're earning, you know, as, as you said in the beginning, there are a couple of hundred million people that live in the U.S., but the problem is that there's six billion people that live in countries which are not the U.S. and not using U.S. Uh, dollars. And for them, life is becoming more and more expensive. You know, so, you know, I, I get that people are complaining in, in, in the U.S. about inflation. But when I look here in Africa, you know, you get people that live on $25, $30 a month. And you're talking about, you know, inflating them even more because of a strong dollar because a lot of what we right. do here is imported. So... I think there's a there's a bit of a, a, a misbalance there. Yeah, and, and you know this is not a this has been the story of human civilization, right? What have, what have humans done in the face of inflation and government financial repression? Previous to Bitcoin, they bought gold, right? And it's we've 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 put gold into our culture, right? You get married in certain countries, you get a dowry in gold, right? You know, I live I live most of my life in in Asia, right? You go down the street in Singapore, Hong Kong, massive gold shops. Biggest watch market in the world, Hong Kong and Singapore. Obviously, there's a, there's a China angle, but people who are not born and bred in this safe, coddled Western environment are used to government stealing their money uh, in more obvious ways than they steal their money in, in the US and other places. Um, so they're like, okay, gold. Gold has traditionally been a way for you to protect your family's wealth, and you'll have it in jewelry. Um, you, maybe you'll have it in, in bars um, or tails or whatever the different, you know, uh, denomination is now that's a great thing uh, that people have this ability to opt out uh, of the system but the problem with gold is in a digital economy is like how do you actually use it in you know in a, in a useful way because once you digitize or make it a sort of derivative then it's no longer gold it's just another liability in the banking system and just you know wildly you, conf confiscated yeah. just like anything else and then you've got a counter you've got, or you also got counterparty risk and everything else um I mean, I think you, you touched on it. So let's, let's actually maybe pivot towards crypto. Uh, Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin gold 2.0? Do you think that people are now going to escape their currency depreciations? People that live in, in the UK, in Europe, in Africa, and everywhere else, maybe even in Japan, are they going to escape 
currency depreciations? And if they are, are they going to escape and put their money into US dollars? Or are they going to put their money into gold? Or are they going to put their money into Bitcoin? Do you think that this may be the Bitcoin era? This may be the big turning point where Bitcoin actually becomes this safe haven like gold was? Well, I think the... I think it's the, in theory, yes, that the, all these things point to, yeah, Bitcoin, the technology works. In practice, um, most people try to get out too late, right? Uh, it, it's kind of like the, the, the gates are already closed and then you realize you need Bitcoin. It's like the Russian oligarchs who thought they were rich and then their whole country got sanctioned and then all the, the nice things they had no longer are theirs anymore. Your time to buy Bitcoin was last month, not today, right? And so most people will not get out of it there they will get financially repressed they'll get stuck into their systems there'll be a small minority who kind of understand this this um this idea and a small amount of money of a big pot i think is going to flow into some of these assets like gold bitcoin and um, other things that can be moved around that are not someone else's liability does that mean that bitcoin can go up a lot yes you know in a, a longer term sort of risk on risk off in terms of uh, scenario, in terms of if you have access to your money or not. But the, the thing that I worry about is if people don't catch on to this narrative early enough, it's just too late because you're, you're waiting until the obvious signs of, oh, now I get it. When you're sitting there and you're like, I, I wanna move my money and I can't because it's in the banking system, there's a new rule, can't move it. Oh, this Bitcoin, I make, it makes sense now. Oh, that's why they were all talking about this. Sorry, too late. And so that's, that's what I worry about. So, you still, so, I mean, according to that, you're saying in this narrative with depreciating and devaluing currencies, you're still early. You're still early because you can still do stuff. You can still, it's not like most places have erected um, capital and border controls and, and all this sort of stuff. We can see it coming. We can see those pockets of examples of, you know how it could happen to you but we're human right and we think it's that that's everyone else's problem I, i'm good i don't need to to do anything i've got whatever i've got i'm comfortable with that my bank would never do that to me my government would never do that to me my politician would never do that to me um these bitcoin until people they're crazy right until, until it happens until it happens you know i mean again like i think that we have an advantage that i've lived in in africa and i've lived in the us and i've lived in multiple other places and the one thing that I don't think U.S. and other developed nations really, really understand is what happens when things fall apart. Because when things fall apart, everything falls apart and governments panic and government put in controls that make it almost impossible to trade. So in South Africa, we had and we still have very stringent exchange controls, which says, hey, you're not allowed to take more than X out of the country. And X is a very small number. You're just not allowed to take it out. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It cannot leave this country. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's one of the controls. I remember when Zimbabwe went down, how all the restrictions that you spoke about came in where people were not allowed to buy. And you know, then the black market, then prices become much, much, much more expensive for US dollars. But I don't think that, the, that, that, that people get that, as you say, until it's too late and all these rules are imposed. And it's like, damn, why didn't we buy that umbrella before it started raining? I guess that, that, that's probably the best analogy. Exactly. <clears throat> and yeah. I think from... You know, right now we're very focused on dollar, dollar liquidity, dollar liquidity, dollar liquidity. It's very important because, you know, I broke, I theorized that Bitcoin is dollar liquidity plus technology, and the technology is moving value between humans without, um, you know, a government system, and gold, which is a physical system. It's a, I'm going to get on, you know, walk my ass and. 
swap my goal around, right? Or put it in some sort of vehicle or whatever, right? So Bitcoin's another system of how to move value between people. And the technology is impossible to value until you need it immensely. And so well, we're not going to value it properly until it's actually needed. And it's going to be one of those like asymptotic lines where Bitcoin's at one price and the next morning you wake up and it's like a completely different price and you either, were, you either had it or you didn't have it. Will Bitcoin replace gold? I mean, um, I know we spoke about it and I know we called Bitcoin, you know, we called Bitcoin a gold 2.0. And I know, but I also know that crypto people are guilty of creating their own narratives and drinking their own Kool-Aid. And, but, you know, Bitcoin's narratives changed multiple times. First, it was cash. Then we realized that it's not going to be cash. Then it was a store of value. Uh, sorry, a non-correlated asset. And then we realized that it was actually very, very correlated. And then it was a hedge against inflation. You know, and we've had these multiple narratives. And I think as crypto people, we're guilty of creating a narrative and then trying to drive the marketing. And it, it's good and bad. But, you know, the question is, is, do you think that gold, that Bitcoin will really displace gold? Do you, think, do you see a, a world in 10, 20 years where people look and say, no, gold, we don't need that anymore. What we do need is this digital gold. So I think, this is, and this is an essay that I want to write at some point, is gold is sovereign bank money. And what I mean by that is when sovereign countries don't trust each other, they resort to gold. It's the reason why all the central banks still hold gold. And the central banks have been net buying gold over the past few years. Now, when a central bank is going to devalue their currency to stimulate their economy, they're going to devalue against the gold that they hold in their, in their vaults. And that's why I own gold. Because I want to, I want to trade. I want to invest with the Fed. Invest with the central banks. The central banks have gold in their balance sheets. It's, you know, the most widely known, you know, inflation hedge or a hedge against the system that humanity is ingrained in our culture. They all hold it too. I should hold some too because when they devalue, they're going to devalue against gold. That's fine. That's the sovereign angle. I've covered that portion of my portfolio. Then, if I want to talk about the people's money, the people who aren't governments. Um, who need to move value between themselves and maybe a bunch of balkanized financial systems. Maybe you have a U.S. system and you have a European system, you have a Russian system, you have a Chinese system. Uh, you have all these different systems out there because we're sort of breaking apart the cohesion over the last, uh, of the last 60, 60, 70 years. Then I want to have the people's money because if I want to you know, trade with somebody in Beijing, if I want to trade with somebody in, uh, in South Africa and Cape Town, if I want to trade with somebody in New York or in London, I've got the people's money and the people's money lets me transact with other human beings and other machines that are not sovereign and sovereign entities. So I think it's a two prong approach. There's valid reasons to own both and they're completely different in their value proposition and how they're, how they'll perform in certain situations. How bullish are you on Bitcoin relative to your bullishness on Ethereum? Which one are you more bullish on? Um, I'm more bullish in the short term on Ethereum, just from a structural point of view of, uh, the removal of the about like 13,000 ETH a day of issuance um, post emerge. But in terms of a philosophical stance, I think Ethereum is setting itself up for rude awakening probably at the middle of the end of the next bull cycle. And that's when we'll sort of <clears throat> understand the value of decentralization if the current situation uh, with how the proof of stake and the validators have sort of set themselves up doesn't really resolve itself. And it's too early to tell whether it's it's going to or not. So before we actually go on to it, let's just, I just want to conclude the Bitcoin part. Uh, in terms of buying Bitcoin, would you be buying Bitcoin now? Because you said initially that you'd be putting your money into cash and sitting in cash at, the, at zero rates or whatever the rates are at the, at the current short-term rate. Um, would you be buying 
would you would you start buying Bitcoin now? And I think what I'm alluding to is, do you think that there is long-term value in Bitcoin? And do you think that we're close enough to the bottom to actually be buying it? So I think if you, I have, I already own Bitcoin. I already own Bitcoin and now it's like, do I want more? And I would say, I'm going to wait because I'm going to trade it a bit. I, I think there's going to be an event and the Fed's going to tell us when, okay, the dollar liquidity situation is going to reverse and then it'll make a lot of sense. Now, does that mean that Bitcoin hasn't pre-traded then and maybe it's 25,000 and it's not 20,000? Maybe, but I'm okay. I'm already, I'm already invested, so I don't care. Like, okay, I missed out on, uh, on, a, bit of, on a bit of upside, whatever. I'm, I'm still participating anyways in my portfolio. If you don't have Bitcoin and, you know, sort of these non-US dollar liquidity arguments resonate with you about worrying about whether or not you're going to have access to your wealth or you or the ways in which you're going to be able to safeguard your wealth against inflation or financial repression are going to be heavily constricted in, in the very near future, then the time was yesterday. Just buy something. The price doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the matter. price is because when you need it, you won't be able to buy it. And so then it's irrelevant with the prices. And so I think that's sort of the situation where people should you know, take a look at um, where they are. How, how do you separate huge conviction in this space, huge conviction around the value of Bitcoin um, and having patience not to pull the trigger in buying? Like on the one hand, it takes a lot of discipline to sit on cash earning 4% when you're so excited about what's happening in this industry. Like, uh, so I know that you're excited about what's happening in the industry. How do you reconcile that? How do you have that patience to not do anything and sit in cash and just wait for the Fed? Um, I think it's just I haven't been investing my own money for, for a while, right? I've, I've done the I, I lost a lot of money in gold. Oh my God, the Fed's going to go bankrupt. The, you know, this money printing thing after the global financial crisis this is all really fucked up. And, you know, went really long gold at the top, right? Because I didn't everything's nuanced there's no nothing goes up or down in a straight line uh and so if you it pays to have a little bit more of a nuanced approach to things so that you get a better price at the end of the day i'm with you okay let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> ethereum so you're saying you're bullish on ethereum in the short term specifically you're bullish on ethereum because of the supply cut um just for those who haven't been watching this is what would have happened since the merge they would have printed 401 1,829 new Ethereum, but they've only printed 6,272 Ethereum, and that's because they've cut the supply of Ethereum because to support the proof-of-stake validators versus the proof-of-work proof miners. Now, theoretically, at some point, ETH will become deflationary. When the market wakes up a bit and there's more movement in the market, ETH becomes de deflationary. Bitcoin is still mildly inflationary, but, but still inflationary. ETH has a relatively large staking reward, so anywhere between 5 and, I don't know, top bounds 10, 12%. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't really have a staking reward. Um, do you think that, so if you're bullish on that short term, do you think that that's going to bring in institutional money? No. I think institutional money is, is dead money until the cycle turns around. Institutional money in size will be there at E3000, E4000, E5000, E6000, E7000, right? Institutional money, and I, and I say this with love because I used to, be in this in the space they're muppets because we're paid to be muppets you're paid to learn these bullshit you know economic theories that don't correlate to how markets actually work because at the end of the day you're a fiduciary you're there to manage assets and not lose your job it's not a hard job it doesn't require a lot of intelligence 
you might stay late a few nights at work and you, you work really hard and blah, blah, blah. But raw human intelligence, while there might be extremely intelligent people there, they're underutilizing their intellect in this field because um, it's just, it's for Muppets. Uh, and, and so they are beyond that. I don't want to lose my job. You lose your job when you invest in Bitcoin at 30,000 and it goes to 18. That's how you lose your job. You do not lose your job if you invest at Bitcoin at 70,000 when everyone else is investing it in Bitcoin. And then it goes down to 18,000 and everybody else loses money with you too. Are they going to fire the entire financial industry because everybody went long Bitcoin at the same time and lost all their money? No, but you will get fired as the outlier who bought Bitcoin at the bottom and it wasn't the bottom. So the, there's not, the, the incentives are not aligned for an institutional money manager to actually try to bet their conviction on i think bitcoin uh is bottom which is why i don't think in size they're going to be you know in the market until it's clear that we're in an upswing or a bull market and they're going to pay the highs and then they're going to sell at the lows as they always do because that those are the incentives but who's going to you know ignite the market it's you know retail it's people who believe it's you know wealthy individuals trading their own family money because they have a different sort of incentive structure but it won't be institutional money managers who do this out. But they'll, they'll they'll bring it to the top, though. That's for sure. But I mean that that's a great that's a great narrative when an asset class is a two hundred billion dollar asset class. But okay, let's let's talk about a one trillion dollar asset class. Can retail still move a one trillion dollar asset class? Absolutely. It, the the last price is a bit of a shimmer, right? Because the last price is the last. If I trade one bitcoin at seventy thousand, and that's the last price. If the next Bitcoin trades at 50,000, that's the last price. It doesn't tell us about liquidity. It doesn't tell us about any of these other things. So the metric in and of itself is a flawed metric. It's like I have, if I have a million Bitcoin and do you think you could sell a million Bitcoin at 70,000? No fucking way you could sell a million Bitcoin at 70,000. But you might say, oh, I'm so rich because I've got Bitcoin at 70,000. My whole portfolio is marked to this value. No, it's not. So I think even that metric in and of itself, if you don't fully understand the what liquidity actually is you'll you'll lead yourself into these fallacies about the last price the last price is irrelevant uh, and so yes retail investors can absolutely lead the market to a last price driven high right and so yeah it, it doesn't i don't i think i don't think that's a that, that cannot happen okay and i mean you said you're bullish on eth what, what makes you so bullish on eth that that chart you just show, you showed us right and so if we if we believe in and i think this narrative is going to catch catch on even more so is ETH is the decentralized computer, the number one, the best one, the most developers, the most uh, decentralized applications, um, the most innovative things getting developed that's going to help this Web3 narrative, that's going to help us own our own assets on the internet and you know all the different things that I'm sure people on your show have talked about, the, this whole Web3 um, movement, ETH is the one. And not only that, it's now mildly inflationary, if not, will be deflationary. And it's a sharp change. It's about the change and not about the value. It's because we went from 10 to one, right? And that's, that, that's why. It doesn't matter what the absolute value is. And that's why I think people are misunderstanding. Okay, yeah, it could still be inflationary, but I went, I went from 10 to one. I went down 90%. That's all I care about. And so if we believe the network is still going to be used and it still is being used, the apps still work and people are still gonna spend gas, and ETH, maybe not spending as much as they used to, but they're not, they're certainly not covering up the 13,000 ETH every day that was being emitted. Um, and so that's, where is that supply coming from? If the network is still at the same levels of activity, even at these yeah. low levels of activity. And so I think that's that's why I'm uh, bullish. And it, of course it's gonna take time, right? I, you know, I, I bought some call options, I'll probably be out of the money on them. 
you know, went a bit too early. Oh, well. Uh, but just like a having in Bitcoin, you just got to yeah. wait and be patient. What about, I mean, so we know that, that you know, OFAC uh, censored Tornado Cash, which is a decentralized protocol. And right now, in, 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 I looked at the, the MEV stats, 53% of the validators on Ethereum are OFAC compliant, which means that they're complying with the sanctions. Now, I don't want to talk about whether they were right to sanction or not right to sanction, because that's a philosophical discussion, which I'm sure will get resolved in due course in the legal system. But does it not worry you that given the fact that 53% of these are now OFAC compliant, because they have to be, because I'm sure a lot of the validators are in the U.S. or affected by U.S. sanctions. Does it not worry you that now ETH becomes censorable? So there's a chart. There's, the reds are the validate the blocks that are validated by by OFAC compliant validators, and the blacks are the ones that are not. And it kind of feels now that you know you can kind of see that the majority of the validators are not OFAC compliant, which means that actually this decentralized blockchain, which is supposed to be uncensorable actually is kind of censorable now and is under the, I'm not going to say control of the governments, but like it's at the mercy of the governments. Does that not worry you about this proof of stake change? Because when you talk about Bitcoin, it's completely uncensorable. You know, you can't be the same to Bitcoin, but when you look at Ethereum, well, you know, 53% are now OFAC compliant. Yeah. So I think that on the one hand, as a near term trade, it actually, I think, bolsters the trade. Because if you think about it, a lot of people have made a lot of money investing in a particular country's technology sector. And I wrote an essay about this and I showed the example of U.S. tech companies and Chinese tech companies. Your data goes to the U.S. or Chinese government, um, depending on which, whether you use Facebook or, or you know, Baidu and Weibo, right? And investors in these both of these ecosystems early made a lot of money. Now, you could philosophically have a, dis have a problem with the fact that you know, the so-called ethos of the internet um, standing up to the man and all this kind of stuff. Okay, cool. You can have that. But at the end of the day, if you're an investor caring about financial returns, the financial returns were there. And because both of these systems were underpinning their technology and supporting them, you did very, very well being early in that. Right. So the Guess similar it. sort of situation could set yourself up today. Right. And, you know, take away the OFAC and U.S. government stuff, let's focus on Binance Smart Chain, right? CZ's blockchain. And I'm not digging CZ at all. I think it's a great thing what he built. But it, it never was decentralized. BNB is what, third or fourth or fifth most valuable coin which underpins this network. Nobody cares. People yes. do not care about decentralization because there hasn't been a test of what it means to value decentralization. Just like when I, we talked about the government, you know, restricting access to your financial assets. Until you see that test, until you feel that pain, you don't value it. And so no one values decentralization and they won't value it until there's some some very popular application. I don't know what it'll be. It'll probably be something that gets really, really popular in the next bull cycle. And they're going to do something that pisses somebody off. And then all of a sudden we're going to focus back on this. Oh, that decentralization thing. Oh, it means I can't probably maybe not use this application possibly. Some there's some uncertainty there. I think that could break the bull market in Ethereum. And I want to be out of there before that happens. So you think that that's going to be the, the 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 great awakening that you spoke about, right? Yeah. And then, I mean, so are you bullish on other layer ones? Are you watching any other layer ones other than than Ethereum? Um, I mean, I guess my other layer one thesis is a lot of them got crushed. They had a cycle, right? And so, 
from a earning or excess return over Bitcoin or ETH, it would make sense to allocate to one or more of these things at the bottom um, because they're going to go up fast. Now, I don't think any of them, I haven't seen anything that comes close to competing with Ethereum. And it's not all based on transactions per second or blah, 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 the other stuff. It's like developer talent. You know, Ethereum has a you know, few thousand developers and the next blockchain, they might have a few hundred. That's all that matters. The developers create this ecosystem. They build the applications, right? And if you think about it, every other layer one has teams basically copying and pasting everything that's been created on Ethereum first, which is fine. You you know, you know, getting into Solana when it's a few cents and out at two hundred, great fucking trade, right? But it's a little bit less of a trade uh, now at thirty dollars. Is it? Do they do they actually have something to to give to the market? in the next cycle what are they going to bring to the market in the next cycle because if it's just oh ethereum is slow it's tra- processing so many transactions gas fees are high we're faster because of some you know thing we wrote down on some math fancy math on the piece of paper and our test that's real fast that works the first time doesn't work the second time and so um i, I don't know uh, i'm not really you know if, I, if the technical situation of the price chart looks good then i would go into some of them but from a you know deep understanding, I don't think any of them can can beat Ethereum as of yet because they don't have the uh, the mind share of of the developers. Well, it's an interesting interesting thesis. Um, the two big narratives or the two big industries on Ethereum right now are NFTs and DeFi. So, I mean, I, I think that if you could say that, you could argue that that's driving the two driving the two experiments on block the three experiments on blockchain that have worked. Uh, one is Bitcoin, and then I think DeFi and NFTs are the other two which have been very successful. DeFi competitiveness in, in, in the long term. So DeFi really worked because we were emitting tokens very, very quickly. We were, we were printing money out of thin air. We had, our, we had our own stimulus in the time of stimulus. So our stimulus was we just minted tokens out of thin air. We made people feel rich. More money came in, bought those tokens, and we created this, this fake this fake. A market, but now DeFi rates are struggling to keep up with Fed rates. So I mean, if you if you take you know four percent that you're earning in the Fed, I don't know where you can earn a sustainable four percent on a risk-adjusted basis uh, that can compete in, in crypto. Question is like, how bullish are you on DeFi? Given that, I'm extremely bullish on DeFi, but I'll caveat that with there's only a few DeFi protocols that matter, and we're finding out what matters. What is it? What I mean by what matters as an individual or a machine or a trading firm or whatnot, if you are willing to pay real money and I'll define real money as Bitcoin ETH or stablecoin, it basically says you're in, you're involved in this protocol, not for earning more of the same token that, that, uh, but you're involved. I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay real money to use the service. I'm going to pay money to use, you know, so I'm going to pay money to use GMX. I'm going to pay money to use DYDX, right? And I'm gonna have trading volume and these protocols are gonna generate real revenue because they offer a service that people like, then they're gonna do astronomically well because they offer something that other people don't offer. But if you're just a me too protocol, you said, I'm gonna tweak around the edges or I've got better Ponzi-nomics with my tokens um, than uh, some of these other protocols, you're gonna find it very, very difficult to attract any interest after we've had this little cycle in terms of the, the DeFi summer and uh and and protocols not delivering people willing to pay real money for their service so what are the protocols that that you think are in the race for this what what, what are the protocols that you think are, are really in the race for the the real uh the ones that survived 
and will survive and continue to grow and where people will actually pay good money to use the protocols. What do you think the protocols are? So if you, you know, trading, right? So you have Uniswap, SushiSwap, One Inch Balancer, GMX, DYDX. Um, I'm not sure of some of the other. I think GMX and DYDX are probably the biggest on the the derivative space. You have borrowing lending, Compound, Aave. Aave. You have start, mm. uh, stablecoin stuff. You have Curve, right? Um, and then those probably are the, the the major things from a financial primitives perspective. And you know we'll probably have some more things that are revolve around staking, uh, ETH and yield and that kind of stuff. I think there's going to be something that comes up that becomes popular to address that side of the market. Um, but yeah, and it's a very it's very few things. Just like in traditional finance, how many exchanges are there? They're not very many, right? and they make a lot of money. Um, but a lot of people try to imitate them. They might blow a bunch of money, but you know the, the the dominant exchanges around the world are still the dominant exchanges around the world. And so I think we're coming to that same realization with with DeFi. And yes, we kind of deluded ourselves because we got a bunch of free tokens. And that was a great game because if you were able to optimize your trading strategy to generate an economic trading flow, earn tokens, and sell your tokens for real money before the price washed out, great trading strategy. But now the price is washed out. Why, 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 why go back in after they've inflated the token supply and all the tokens that are already out there? You're like, okay, well, where are the fees? Where, where are the traders? How can I earn? How is this DAO earning anything? And they're like, oh, zero, right? And so they're all, they'll fade to zero. I mean, I think speaking about fading to zero, let's talk about NFTs for a few minutes. Um, we had the boom. We had, I think, the bust. I think if you look at, at, at NFT time now, most of the NFT collections are at zero. Few of them still have good value, and obviously the blue chips still maintain their blue chip status, but at like hugely lower prices. So I guess the, the theory, the thesis is that the ones that went to zero probably deserve to be at zero. Let's talk about the future of the blue chips, of the punks, of the apes. I mean, of the I don't know, want to call it crypto dick butts. I saw that you you had a, a dick butt as a one D equals one B. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, what, what's the future for those? How, how does that play out? It's just like the future for any art, right? If you think about how many artists have, how many human artists have there been in the 10,000 years of human civilization? Probably millions of artists, right? And yet, if you go to a museum, there's only a few, right? And so I, there's a, uh, I forgot who it was, and he made a very good point. Most art is future trash. Right. And so if you think about NFT, NFT enabled digital art, because NFTs are not art, NFT is a data construct. NFT enabled digital art is just future. I don't even know what you call trash in the digital space, right? Just like bits of data that aren't stored anywhere, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Just like regular, because there's, and now it's going to be even more acute in this space because it's transparent. Um, the internet allows things to move quicker. We have this a much more of a, a, a not a Pareto distribution, but the best is going to be known as the best big time versus if you're not even close, you're just going to be oblivious. I think the difference is that you speak about art, but I mean, to me, you're not buying any NFTs because of the art. You're not buying a board ape because you like the art. You're not buying a crypto dick butt because you like the art. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people like the dicks. I don't know. But, but I'm saying like, you're not buying it as the art. You're buying it because you're part of a club and there's supposed to be a whole lot of utility and there's a board API club and there's a metaverse and you can participate. And I mean, is oh, that no, no, different? That's, it's the same thing. It's like, I buy, I'm a big collector. 
I get invited to the Met Gala. I get to go to the Gagosian opening. Uh, I get to go to, you know, some fancy parties in London, Paris, Tokyo, Beijing, New York, right? It's the same thing. I'm part of this exclusive club. They give me a call to sell me squiggles on a canvas for $10 million, right? It's the same thing. Um, it's just, you know, the younger version of it. It's how they want to express who is socially valuable in this in this ecosystem versus the old way that we've been doing for you know a few thousand years. Of we have this place, we look at some stuff on a wall. We have these wealthy patrons who help fund it, and then we sort of like you know uh, have a party, right? It's the same thing. Would you be buying NFTs now? Would you be buying like punks and apes and and and, and uh, uh, I don't know, mutant apes? Would you be buying any of, of that right now? You think you think the value of those has come down to anywhere near realistic i have no idea i mean i own some of the major projects i think the real value is in the platforms that enable the trading right and so as you said the ethereum um the most profitable DAOs and I guess what you want to call it uh centralized companies and in, in the ethereum dap space are all related to nft trading so if you want to get into some of those buy that's great buy the picks and shovels right and if you like and if you like the dick butt who am I to tell you that you should have a picture of a dick as your PFP? Fred, you heard that? If you like the dick butt, you should get the picture of a dick, bro. Not, <laughs> not the penguins that you get. <laughs> yeah. Listen, my friend, it's been absolutely, absolutely, absolutely amazing having you on Banton. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely amazing seeing you again. Uh, I hope to see you again in person soon. Uh, I am coming to your side of the world uh, pretty soon, so I'll ping you when, awesome. I, when I hit. Yeah. My friend, good to see you. Thank you for coming on Banter and much love from the Banter fam. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. So that's Arthur Hayes. We haven't seen him for a while, but she's what how much alpha? I told you, I told you this would be one of the highest alpha per minute shows if we've ever done. And it was exactly that. And remember, remember, remember. Because of that, we need to thank our sponsor. Our sponsors are NordVPN. They are the crypto VPN. You can thank our sponsors and you can get yourself a deal that protects your crypto for three dollars a month. And as I said before, if you've survived the whole bear market and you haven't lost your crypto the last thing that you want to do is lose your crypto in a hack or lose your crypto because some exchange decides to lock you out because they recognize your ip address etc etc so support nordvpn support the crypto vpn and do it for three dollars a month and support one of our sponsors and then remember lastly we are running the bitget and bybit trading competition uh there are links below as you can see uh hit the links below that'll tell you where people are ranking if you want to participate there's over a hundred thousand dollars up for grabs um it's fun 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 so join us um and yeah stand a chance to win over a hundred thousand dollars and i think with that have a beautiful weekend i will see you guys again on monday until then trade well my friends Thank you.